Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of the arrest and the trial of Jesus. And today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. Now, in the previous broadcast, I was explaining that the chief priests and the Pharisees, the elders of the people, had assembled together, and they made a decision that they were going to try to find a way to kill Jesus because they were concerned that other people were going to follow him. They were concerned that the Romans were going to come and take away their place and potentially their country because of the potential sedition that would occur if Jesus was declared to be the messianic king. And so they made a decision that they would rather align themselves with the Romans than align themselves with Jesus as a potential messianic king, as a potential messiah. I also explained in the previous broadcast that they would rather he die for his beliefs than they die for their beliefs. And the reason why I said that was because they were willing to put aside their own beliefs concerning the laws that they had established. They were willing to violate their own laws in order to convict him to ensure their job security and to ensure their position. And in the next few programs, I will be explaining the specifics concerning that and showing you how they were violating their own laws when Jesus was arrested and when he was put on trial. But in today's program, I would like to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. This is Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus explained that he knew about the conspiracy. Jesus told his disciples that a conspiracy had taken place and that he was going to be crucified. Beginning in Matthew chapter 26, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Which means a couple of things. The first thing is, is that he is going to be handed over to the Romans to perform the crucifixion. This implies that the religious leaders were going to capture him, arrest him, and then turn him over to the Romans, and that the Romans would put him on trial, and they would pass judgment that would result in crucifixion. They would then crucify him, because the religious leaders there in Israel did not have the authority to perform the crucifixions, only the Romans did. However, the Romans would not turn the Lord Jesus over to themselves, There needs to be somebody else to turn him over. And so I believe he was referring to the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin. They were going to turn him over to the Romans and that he was going to be crucified. And this would happen in two days on the Passover. So while there was a conspiracy that was taking place, this was not unknown to the Lord Jesus. He knew about it. He knew about the conspiracy. He knew that they were going to try to find some way to kill him. And he exposes the conspiracy. He exposes the existence of the conspiracy to his disciples here. 
He does not give any details concerning who is actually going to do it. He doesn't give any details about being betrayed by one of them. He doesn't give them any details yet so that they can determine exactly how much he really knows or how much he doesn't know. He just tells them enough in order to expose the conspirators, in order to get word to the conspirators, because they would eventually find out if he says this so openly in the temple where he is already speaking. They would eventually find out that he knows about the conspiracy, and he says that it's going to happen in two days on the Passover. So what do they do? What is going to be their response? Well, they reconvene to recommit themselves to the conspiracy, but they add a little something extra to their conspiracy. And this is given in the following verses, beginning in Matthew chapter 26, verse 3. It says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now, there are two ways to look at this. The first way, which I think is unlikely, but this is one way to consider this. The first way you can consider this is to suggest that if there are a lot of people who are there, and there are a lot of people who do believe in the Lord Jesus, they might intervene if the religious authorities try to arrest him. That is a possibility. However, I personally believe, it's my conviction, that they said that a riot might occur among the people, not because they would not want him to be captured and crucified, but because he said that he was going to be captured and he was going to be handed over and he was going to be crucified on the Passover during the festival. And so it's my belief that they made this decision in response to what he said in verse 2, Matthew chapter 26, verse 2. He said that he was going to die two days later during the Passover. So they convened and they conspired with one another to add this one little detail to their plot, and that is, we can't do it on the festival because he said it was going to happen on the festival. And so if it happens during the festival, then people are going to say, not only did he know that it was going to happen, he told us that it was going to happen, and it happened exactly how he told us, which means that he was a prophet. He uttered a prophecy, and the prophecy came to pass. So I believe that they found themselves in a situation where they were not able to capture him and crucify him on the Passover, because if they did, then they would fulfill the prophecy that he proclaimed. It would be in their interest then to ensure that he is not captured during the festival, because if he's not captured and crucified during the festival, then they could point to what he said and say he is not a prophet. So this is a very important thing to understand, and that is that Jesus has put himself in a situation where he is going to either be declared a prophet or a false prophet. These are the only two options, and he's got two days for this to be realized. That's the seriousness of what is taking place here, and the seriousness of his statement that he has put himself in a position where he must be handed over and he must be crucified, otherwise he's going to be declared a liar and the truth is not in him. So how is he going to accomplish this? How is he going to make this work? Well, this is a very important thing to recognize, that they had determined they would not seize him and have him crucified on the Passover, but he is going to be seized and crucified on the Passover. And I will show you, I'll explain to you exactly how this was accomplished how he accomplished this in just a few minutes. 
Before that, I'd like to go ahead and continue with Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Matthew chapter 26, verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. I was explaining in the previous broadcast that I personally believe that his intent in doing this was not to just betray Jesus. He was not looking for a little extra money. It's my belief that he did this for a different reason than what is expressed here. And the reason why I say that is because things did not appear to turn out as he thought they would. For example, after the Lord Jesus is arrested, he is captured, Judas does not follow through with his responsibilities as a witness. And he repents, he gives the money back. Why would he take the money and then give the money back? To me, this means only one thing, and that is when he took the money, he expected one thing to happen, but that did not happen, and so he gave the money back. What were his expectations? In the previous program, I explained that I believe his expectation was that Jesus would resist the arrest. If he resisted the arrest, then he would have to invoke a revolution, which would eventually result in him being established as the messianic king. And so it's my belief that Judas was trying to help Jesus out a little bit, that Judas was wanting to create the circumstances to put Jesus in a situation where there was no alternative but for him to be established as the messianic king. And I believe that Judas justified his actions by doing this. However, when things did not come to pass in that way, it was then that he repented and he committed suicide in light of the situation that had taken place. Now, there are a number of very important things that I want you to notice here concerning this transaction that takes place between Judas Iscariot and the chief priests. The first thing is, is that they give him 30 pieces of silver. And there are two very important things that I want you to understand concerning the 30 pieces of silver. The first thing is that it's quite likely that this money came from the temple treasury. If this money came from the temple treasury then it's quite likely that the money was given to the temple treasury for the purpose of purchasing sacrifices. Now, the money was allotted in different ways. There were several containers that people would give money into for different purposes when people would donate to the temple. And so there's no way for me to say with absolute certainty that this was the proper accounting of this money. However, I would like to think that perhaps this was a way of the chief priests fulfilling their responsibility of providing a sacrifice for the people, purchasing a sacrifice for the people, that the Lord Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for the people in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So that's one way to look at the 30 pieces of silver that I certainly do enjoy considering. But there's something that's even more important than that, and that is that no transaction in Israel would ever be resolved on the basis of 30 pieces of silver. In other words, if two people were making an agreement with one another, and the price that was to be exchanged for goods or services turned out to be 30 pieces of silver, no one would ever settle on 30 pieces of silver. This was a very important aspect of the culture, of the society there in Israel, that no one would ever settle a transaction on the basis of 30 pieces. If the sum totaled 30 pieces, they would renegotiate the terms to agree on either 29 or 31 pieces, but never 
30 pieces. The reason why this was the case was because of a law that was given by the Lord in Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus chapter 21, in verse 32, it says, If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. In this law that God gave, it was declared that the value of a human slave, of a male or female slave, was 30 shekels of silver. That was the equivalent of 30 days of labor. One shekel per day was the equivalent value of labor during this time in history, which in today's terms is approximately two-fifths of an ounce of silver. Back then, it was recognized that 30 pieces of silver was the value of a dead slave. And this was not considered to be a positive thing. To value an individual at 30 days labor, 30 shekels of silver, was to put a price on human life. And so when people would resolve transactions to 30 pieces of silver, they would never settle on that because if someone was to offer someone else 30 pieces of silver, there would be this stigma placed on it. There would be this relationship that people knew of that what a person is saying is that they value a person's services or they value a person's goods as the price of a dead slave. It was a cultural stigma. It was one of those things that people just did not want to be associated with. They didn't want to look at another person or relate to another person and say, I want you to know what you're worth to me. What you are worth to me is the price of a dead slave. That's what you're worth to me. And so people would never resolve transactions. They would never come to agreements on 30 pieces. They would only settle on 29 or 31 except for here, except in this circumstance. In this circumstance, the chief priests give Judas 30 pieces of silver for the services that he is going to perform. When they do this, what they are doing is they are expressing contempt towards Judas. They're telling Judas, Judas, we understand that you're one of his disciples. We understand that you have your convictions, or perhaps the lack of conviction, Regardless of those things, we want you to know how much we really value you. We consider you to be an evil person because you are willing to betray someone who is close to you. And we are going to express our contempt towards the situation and our contempt towards you by offering to you and by giving you the price of a dead slave, that that's what you're worth to us. And we just want you to know that, that what you are worth to us is the price of a dead slave 30 pieces of silver. Now, this price is also associated with the Lord Jesus because Judas is turning over to them the Lord Jesus. He is participating in a conspiracy and they are saying to Judas that Jesus is worth the price of a dead slave. That is a direct fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah where they counted out the value of that the Lord Jesus was to them, that they were willing to pay 30 pieces of silver in order to capture the Lord Jesus and kill him, that that was what Jesus was worth to them. In addition to what Judas was worth to them, this was also indirectly saying that this is what Jesus was worth to them. And Jesus was the Lord. He was the living God manifested in the flesh. So this was a very unusual transaction. And I believe that the significance of this 
is to say that any other person who would be providing a service for somebody else would not be willing to accept 30 pieces of silver. They would not be willing to do business with another individual. They would not be willing to trade with another person who showed such contempt towards them unless there was an alternative motive, which to me gives more evidence to show that Judas had a different motive, that he was willing to allow someone to express such sincere, devoted contempt towards him, that he would be willing to take this. And so I believe that when he received, when he was willing to accept the 30 pieces of silver, that he was showing that he was not really establishing an alliance with these individuals. He was not really establishing an alliance, and I believe that they would have some uncertainty as to whether or not he would actually fulfill this agreement, that because he accepted such contempt, there must have been another motive. So please understand that no one would ever resolve a transaction with 30 pieces. Now what's even more interesting to me is that this is the fulfillment of a prophecy that was given in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. In Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, the Lord gives a prophecy concerning how they valued him, in what way they valued him. And the way that he expressed it was to say that they valued him as a dead slave, that that was how they looked at the Lord, by offering him 30 pieces of silver. So there was a prophecy that was given that there would be payment for the value of the Lord at 30 pieces. But for this prophecy to be fulfilled, for there to be a fulfillment to this prophecy, for there to be an exchange of this amount, would be virtually impossible. Virtually impossible for there to be an exchange, not only for someone to offer that amount, but also for somebody to receive that amount. Both sides have to be understood that somebody would express contempt, but also that somebody else would be willing to accept that kind of contempt towards them. So I believe that considering the prophecy that was given in Zechariah chapter 11 verse 12, that the fulfillment of it would be very unlikely. And yet it was fulfilled right here. Right here in Matthew chapter 26 verses 14 through 16, it was fulfilled. In Zechariah, the prophecy was given in chapter 11, beginning in verse 10. I'm going to start in verse 10. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 10 to verse 13. In verse 10 it says, I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued to them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. This was the prophecy that was given. So the thirty shekels of silver that was used as the transaction was prophesied. It was fulfilled when Judas went to speak with the chief priests. Then afterwards, verse 13, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13 was fulfilled when he gave the money back to them in the temple. He threw it back at them, and they took it, and they bought the potter's field. This was revealed in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. 
In Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. So the fulfillment of this prophecy was described in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 through 16, and then with reference to the potter's field, Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 10. Now in verse 9, Matthew chapter 27, verse 9, it says, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. There's a little bit of an error here that he says Jeremiah, because the prophecy was given by Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, not the prophet Jeremiah. There is a discrepancy here, and I think it's important to notice this. I think it's very important to recognize this discrepancy. There are a couple of explanations that we could give concerning this discrepancy. The first explanation is that Matthew just got it wrong, that he made a mistake, that he said Jeremiah when he perhaps meant to say Zechariah. We could just say that that is a mistake. I don't think that that is necessary. However, we could say that 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 is a simple way of resolving this problem. And in that way, we can continue to just go on and read and say, yes, Matthew made a little bit of an error, but that's okay because the prophecy is still in the scriptures. We just have to go to the prophet Zechariah to find it. The second possibility is to understand the way that scrolls were compiled and how they were labeled. Quite often the scribes would write several books in one scroll. One of the reasons why they would do this is because some of the prophets were relatively short and there was enough room. They had enough materials available and so they did not want to waste the scrolls that they were constructing, that they were making. And so they would put several prophets, several writings in the same scroll. But the way they would label that scroll would be by putting the first book that was written in the scroll on the title. And so you could consider the way that the scribes managed the text that they were copying by saying that there was probably a scroll that Jeremiah was written on first and Zechariah was also included in that scroll, in the totality of that scroll, but it was labeled Jeremiah. And so you could look at it from that point of view, that when Matthew refers to Jeremiah, he's referring to the scroll itself and all of the prophets that are written in that scroll, but the first prophet in that scroll was the prophet Jeremiah. Zechariah would be found there, they just have to keep reading. That's another explanation that you could consider that has some historical validity. 
But I prefer another possibility, another alternative, and that is that Matthew did get it right, and there was a problem in the translation from Matthew's Gospel to the Gospels that we have available to us in English today, that there is a discrepancy in the translation. Now, if you go to the Greek text, if you go to the Greek manuscripts that we have available, you will find that in Greek it does say Jeremiah. That's not the translation that I'm referring to. What I'm referring to is the translation between Hebrew and Greek, not Greek and English. Matthew's gospel was originally written in Hebrew. He wrote his gospel in Hebrew. We have a lot of historical evidence that shows this, that when he wrote his gospel, the gospel of Matthew, it was originally written in Hebrew, and then it was translated into Greek. And it turns out that I have a copy I have a copy of Matthew's Gospel in Hebrew, and so I checked it. And sure enough, in the Hebrew, in the text that Matthew wrote, he wrote Zechariah. It was correct in his Gospel when he originally wrote it, but when the translators translated from Hebrew to Greek, there was an error where they said the prophet Jeremiah instead of Zechariah, and that is an error that has been propagated since. And so that is my preferred explanation. I can give you three explanations. One, an absolute error. The second explanation is that Jeremiah was the first prophet in a scroll that contained several prophets. Zechariah was probably one of them. But the third explanation that I have is that it was a translational problem between the Hebrew and the Greek. It was a translational error there, and that we can resolve it by going to the original manuscript that Matthew wrote. I don't have the original manuscript. I have a copy of it. And in the copy that I have, it appears that he intended and he did actually write the prophet Zechariah. And so that's how I resolved this discrepancy. Now, Judas made an agreement to betray Jesus. However, part of that agreement would also include what the chief priests had already determined, and that was that Jesus was not to be betrayed on the Passover. He was not to be captured and killed on the Passover, because if he was, then the prophecy that he gave in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, would come to pass, and there would be an uproar amongst the people. But he was betrayed on that day. He was betrayed on the Passover. Everything that he prophesied was fulfilled. How did Jesus accomplish this when the conspirators had determined that they would not do this? The way Jesus accomplished this was by exposing the conspiracy. And he exposed the conspiracy with Judas at the Passover. And I will explain this exposure in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net 